Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pushing the Envelope, where all manner of fringe topics are covered from a purely biblical perspective. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the program. We are your host, Brian Ingram and Matthew Miller. Tonight, we are going to be talking about the prophecy of the two sticks as detailed in Ezekiel chapter 37. This is very seldomly mentioned in end-time teachings. Uh, You very rarely uh, will find anything about the prophecy of the two sticks. But it is, well, obviously seriously important a future time when the entire house of those that had been straightened comes together. And you'll take note that normally whenever you ask somebody, well, who's the two names on the sticks? They immediately say, well, obviously Judah and Israel. No, no, it's not. That's that's not the two names on the two sticks. And there's a reason for that, because these two sticks will be joined into a rod of iron. You get that right in the text, as we're going to find out here in Hebrew. But, uh, Brian, let's get your opening comments on this prophecy. And if you've ever heard it covered before or did any research on this independently of this program. Well, we talked about this specific uh, prophecy many times in the past, so this is not anything new across uh, my bow here. So, uh, you know, the one thing, though, to take note of, though, is, you know, you brought up Israel, but most notably, I've heard everybody refer to it as being Ephraim, when if you pay careful attention, there's a little bit more going on there than what you would think. Oh, yeah, there's a lot more going on there because Ephraim is not what's named on the stick. It's not. But immediately when you look at it, there's only one thing that um, you can really bring your mind to. It uh, Most people have studied uh, the book of Revelation, no doubt about it. And when you take a look at that, you have to come to grips with uh, the simple fact that why – is Ephraim detailed here when Ephraim is not in the infamous list uh, found in uh, Revelation, uh, the seventh chapter. It's not there. And until you tear that list apart, you can't really understand what's going on in the numbering system and why it's being given relayed this way because Ephraim should no doubt be here, uh, no doubt about it, because Joseph and Manasseh are both both in that list, but Ephraim is ominously missing. But when you make a schematic of that and take a look at it, it begins to make sense. When you put these sons in their proper order, and um, like I've done uh, before, I've 
made a list, and I think I posted that up on Twitter, if I remember correctly. But when you make a schematic of it and color code it or do something so you can differentiate between Leia and her handmaid, between Rachel and her handmaid, and color code them to step back and be able to take a look at it, oh, it, it makes a whole lot of sense what's going on. But... <clears throat> You can't talk about this prophecy and not talk about the book of Hosea. There's no doubt about it. And uh, everybody needs to realize that's, that's why the book of Hosea was written. And we need to know that this is prophetically tied into it because, well, Joshua, son of Nun, his name, uh, according to Numbers 13.8 and 13.6, was originally Hosea, and his name was changed to Joshua. And there's a whole lot there being set up prophetically. So when you talk to people about the book of Hosea and the long diatribe there with Ephraim, because that is the, the main gist of the text, and... You also have this; uh, these two names come up in that text in the fifth chapter. They they deadpan one with another. So in Hosea chapter five verse ten, the princes of Judah were like them that removed the bound. Therefore, I will pour out my wrath on them like water. You begin to realize that this whole thing is about the Assyrian invasion, and no doubt about it, that Ephraim is the northern tribe of Israel. All of those tribes that were there, that's what's being referred to here. So when you take that into full context, realize what's going on, uh, what's happening. Um, chapter 5, uh, well, it's, it, it's all over it, that Israel is Ephraim. And... You switch back and forth between the two, and it makes you wonder, well, why is God, why does God keep switching this up? Ephraim would inevitably be the ten lost tribes, but <clears throat> this is a way for God to put it one way. Instead of saying the ten lost tribes of Israel, he says Ephraim. And, uh... Well, Hosea chapter 5, verse 11, Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment. Here we see that this is one of the ways that God says it, that it's broken. And he's talking about all of northern Israel, which would become Samaria. Uh, they are half Kinloss tribe and half Assyrian. That's what the real gist of the entire book of Hosea is about, the breaking, the shattering uh, that's going on in this prophecy right here. So, Brian, your your thoughts on that? With Ephraim, too, it's important to understand that the simple meaning of his name is the fullness of the Gentile. And to add in another historical layer into this, because the people that were moved from where they were moved from um, into the northern regions of Israel is extremely important um you have a lot of them coming out there from the uh regions around the caucasus mountains uh 
be it out by Azerbaijan, um, up and through those areas, Armenia and some of that is where some of these groups were at when they were moved there. But another thing to take careful note of is the fact that the Pakhtun tribes that are between Pakistan and Afghanistan, there's one specific tribe within them that they've traced genetically and even through um, varied carried on customs that they have to this day that have identified them as being the actual blood relations to the actual tribe of Ephraim. So that's pretty important archaeogenetical research you've did there. And this explodes this whole prophecy literally off the page because prophetically speaking, ladies and gentlemen, this is a magnificent way to exclude anybody that would have been polluted with the Assyrian bloodline because, well, like I said, that's what Samaritans are. They're half Tinlaw's tribes and they're half Assyrian. And there's the last time I checked, there was less than a thousand of them left. And every uh, academic on this planet knows that the closest way to pronounce Hebrew is how they pronounce it. That being the case, you look back at the list in Revelation chapter 7. Do you realize why they're excluded? God is trying to point that out to you that, well, with the backdrop of all the prophetic books, not just Hosea, you repeatedly get this, that they're going to be um, shattered and turned into splinters among the nations. So that's what is referred to when Ephraim is mentioned. Uh, it means the entire ten lost tribes, but we can track that now with genetics. So God is tying the past to future events, and not only future uh, events, but locations that we now can point to on a map. So this is pretty important that everybody realizes that really what this is is a detailed representation of what God is going to create the rod of iron out of. And uh, that rod of iron is mentioned in Psalm 2.9 and Revelation 2.27 and 12.5 and 19.15. And when you take a look at this, you'll have to take note that um, here in the verse, it says, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the rods of Israel, his companions. Take note that I corrected the translation right there. That actually says rod. That is the same word used in the rod of iron prophecies. So God fully intends to, uh, had always intended on explaining to you what this rod of iron was going to be comprised of. And here he tells you. And this prophecy goes to great lengths uh, to well, to get you to understand what's going to go on here. And, of course, this, this very thing happened. Uh, Assyria did invade, and the northern tribes were scattered, no doubt about it. But I'm going to take a read of this out of uh, 
no particular translation. I am using the web translation as a base. That's the world English translation, but it is in the public domain. I have corrected it because the one thing I don't like about this translation is it tries to pronounce the proper name of the Lord my God. I avoid that, and other places where it needs correcting, I will just correct it. So if you're following along in the different English translations, I assure you, you're going to get a different uh, flavor. But uh, you can go to read this particular one at according to the scripture.wordpress.com, Sanctus Supplementium. We shall start from the beginning of the prophecy. You, son of man, take one stick and write on it, Judah. And for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it, For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim. And for all the house of Israel, his companions. And join them for you one to another into one stick, that they may become a one in your hand. When the children of your people shall speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what... You mean by these? Tell them. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the rods of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with it, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hand. The sticks whereon you write shall be in your hand before their eyes. Say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them on every side, and will bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. So they be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. And they shall also walk in my ordinances and observe my statutes and do them. They shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they shall dwell therein, they and their children and their children's children forever. And David my servant shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My tabernacle shall also be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nation shall know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary shall be in their midst forever. Of course, it ends after the thousand-year reign of Christ, when God himself comes down. So this is a magnificent map to the future, and you know the first thing that comes to my mind is, well, 
why is Israel mentioned on both sticks? Let me say that one more time. It says, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. So, Israel's on that stick. Now, for you to another, into one stick, you'll take note that on the other half of that stick, the top half, for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Israel's on both sides of the stick. Now, that's the whole reason why this prophecy is given. You have to realize that these ten lost tribes here are absolutely included in both sides of the stick. So God has to partial this out and give this another representation. Here, Ephraim. And on his stick is written, Joseph. So, Brian, your your thoughts on this prophecy after hearing it read? Well, it just gets me thinking where you bring up how it states Israel on both sticks. I mean, obviously, the totality of what used to be split up between Judah and Israel obviously is not going to be the case, where it's going to be both all the tribes together under one, I'd say, heading, one title, bringing them all about, I guess. Yeah, that was the only way to do it, and we have that genetically, Brian. Everybody knows that the people that call themselves a Jew, well, they don't look anything like Jesus would have looked. So we know that God has ran this into totality that truly um, the house of Israel, all the tribes, all 12 tribes are completely shattered and he intends to put them back together using something else. And he's quite clear as to what he uses to put them back together. I mean, uh, he has no no problems telling you that uh, in the kingdom of heaven, uh, they will walk in his ordinances and observe his statutes and do them. I mean, he puts himself quite clear. And then he says that um, they shall also dwell in – he doesn't say Israel. He, he doesn't say promised land. That's No, he takes you back to the actual parcel of land where Christ is going to have his throne set up. Uh, they shall dwell in the land that I give to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. So that's why he's putting it that way, making sure that you know that these people are going to be different. Um, well, they're going to include everybody. This is going to turn into a coat of many colors for sure. And he's making that perfectly clear. Um and this this prophecy upsets a lot of people. Um, when you, if you really want to get an orthodox fired up, mention up this, uh, mention this prophecy and say, yeah, but Israel's going to be uh, mingled with Judah and Joseph, and they'll immediately get mad because the the Jews are really, you know, uh, they're really staunch in the simple fact that no, we are the tribe of Judah. Um, no, you're not. <laughs> and Jesus didn't look like you. And if you think that uh, your present appearance is how the children of Israel looked whenever the Assyrian invaded, you're really short-sighted and you haven't spent any time uh, – well, in museums because there's all types of iconography uh, that will clearly slam that in your face. No, they weren't 
uh, Caucasian people with black hair and long nose. That's that's not what they look like. So God is obviously telling you uh, right up front here that there's going to come a time when, well, his people is not going to be, be, be based on bloodlines, that's for sure. But the jurisdiction, the administration of his kingdom is going to be done using prophetically this 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 machination. So ladies and gentlemen, there's there's something that you really do need to know and come to grips with. Uh you're going to take note that there's a whole lot of things going on here in the Bible. But the Jews, they know of two messiahs, ladies and gentlemen. They have two messiahs. They always have. They know of Messiah ben David and Messiah ben Joseph. Now, they firmly believe that the one whom they pierced, that they mourn over, from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, they think that is Messiah ben Joseph being struck down in the battle of Gog and Magog. That's firmly what they believe. So, this prophecy of the two sticks is embedded in their consciousness and cannot be separated. Uh, that's why it's very entertaining at times to talk with an Orthodox person concerning the coming of the Messiah because they'll, they'll say which one, and then they'll laugh because they'll think you don't know what they're talking about. So this is extremely important what what is going on here. And you have to take note that this also includes, well, the Song of Deborah, because another strange thing happens there. The tribe of Judah is not mentioned, yet the tribe of Ephraim is. So this this is permeated through the prophetic text dealing with the end times. I mean, many times I have spoken of the events from Judges chapter 5 and the simple fact that it contains the celestial scapegoat. So when you consider that why isn't Judah mentioned there and why is Ephraim mentioned, things begin to get your gears turning as to this is a mechanism that is different than anybody is talking about. God is going to rule, and we know what one side of this stick obviously is going to be due to Revelation chapter 20. We know exactly who they are. But the top half of that stick is a little bit more grandiose, shall we say. Grandiose indeed. The lion from the tribe of Judah, no doubt about it. So Brian, your thoughts on, well how this pertains to end-time Bible prophecy. Well, one thing I think that you pointed out that stands out in my mind is how you brought up the coat of many colors, because, folks, you have to understand that the people of the ancient nation of Israel, they were spread out into all the lands around them, and they have mixed in with the populations, and they take on, obviously, the appearance of those populations now. So that's what you're initially going to end up with is an overall coat of many colors with the people coming out from many tribes, tongues, and nations. So, Yes, 
obviously the the prophecy would be upsetting to modern Jews. It would obviously be upsetting to them. And like I said, this this topic is not a very popular topic. But uh, amazingly enough, we've even found iconography of the one in Egypt with that coat of many colors. Is that not correct, Brian? Yeah, there's a statue that has been found that – well, it's what started David Rowe on his uh, corrective chronology uh, work because of the fact that he saw that statue and just stood there in front of the entire crowd and said, that's Joseph. And there was no other person it could be. I mean, that's just that's just the way it is. So, Brian, when we look past the Hebrew, when we look past the Greek – well, not past them, but beyond them, shall we say. Uh, you get some pretty interesting mechanics with the Bible because, ladies and gentlemen, everybody knows, every single Orthodox person can tell you that one of the main reasons why God must have taken their vowels and they have to use their jots and tittles to try to correctly pronounce it, or more importantly, I mean, they, they will be the first ones to tell you, no, we're not really trying to pronounce it correctly. We're trying to pronounce it in unison. We all need to pronounce the same thing, whether we're Spanish or whether we're Italian or German. That's what the jots and tittles provide for the Masoretic text. They try to keep people at least pronouncing the same thing, even though they will be the first to tell you, no, <laughs> we, we have no idea God stole our vows from us. And we are to get, we are to receive a pure tongue in the kingdom of heaven, which is not in heaven, and they'll be the first to tell you that too. No, uh, there is no going to heaven. That kingdom is on earth. That's what the kingdom of heaven is. So they'll be the first to tell you that God loves to use anagrams, and he can do it with entire verses. So, uh, Brian, what did you think of the anagrams for these two particular names on this stick? Because both of them contain a prefix lamed, and anybody that's reading the English and not looking at the Hebrew directly can't see that. They don't realize that, that God is doing some pretty wonderful things with that. So can you share with us uh, those particular anagrams and where they go and the prophetic significance therein? Yep, and it comes up in a real interesting spot, something I've covered with some of the history work I've done recently. In Daniel 11, verse 6, it states, And in the end of years they shall join themselves together, for the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she will not retain the power of the arm, neither shall he stand nor his arm, but she shall be given up, and they that brought her and he that begat her, and he that strengthened her in these times. Now, what I ended up finding out on this verse, because obviously we have the first time around the right, historically speaking, coming to a good old Bernice for this verse, which is what you're going to find in a lot of uh, the commentaries. But when I started looking at this from a, a second time around the ride, I stumbled into something interesting with... Uh, one of Muhammad's wives, because you have to understand he had several wives, and uh, this one specifically was named Aisha. Aisha, I believe, A-I-S-H-A. And 
lo and behold, she was involved in the midst of uh, some conflicts that broke out right away there early with, I believe it was the third caliph, and she's tied in deeply with the uh, Sunni-Shia split and all over the place. There's a lot of deep stuff that goes into her, and instead of trying to cover it all here, it'd just be wise for people to go look up some encyclopedia articles on this to get familiar with her, but uh, this instance of the Battle of the Camel is the real major one, and, you know, at first glance, it's hard to realize that the possibility of a person holding two roles as in being the wife of Muhammad, but then on top of it, how in the world can she be a daughter of the king of the south? Well, guess what? The first caliphate after Muhammad passed was her father. And lo and behold, it throws her into a spot, and in the midst of after what happened with this battle of the camel and with... um the kind of the heart of the Sunni Shia split, Ali, you get word for word events that transpired when they were taking her back um, to the Southern stronghold, to that camp after uh, starting this battle. So it's an interesting little um, historical anomaly in this mix. And I mean, you know, the other strange thing in this folks too, is not many talk about this, but one of Muhammad's wives was Jewish. And I find it very strange that you've got this interplay between two wives suddenly making you kind of look at what's going on in Ezekiel 37, look at this historical pattern and how it aligns with Daniel 11. Which is really off the charts how it does that. I mean, it's it's really off the charts how it does that. Uh, absolutely. Uh mind-boggling that you know we have talked about this so many times uh and to get this in your face in an anagram is just off the charts it's just it's just off the charts um it, it taking it its historical context as you said with bernice but then when you superimpose on that uh, this anagram is there prophetically as to who's going to be involved and, and which direction they're going and the whole nine yards. It literally makes it explode off the page. There's no doubt about it. it it's it's mind-boggling. So did you have any other references to anagrams you wanted to share? Well, there is another one here in Joel 3 verse 3. Is well here, and uh, and they have cast lots for my people, and have given a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they might drink. Now, what gets interesting here as well is the other details surrounding this. Um, we have in verse uh, four, yes, and what have you to do with me, O Tyr and Sidon, and all the coast of Palestine, where you render me a recompense? If you recompense me swiftly and speedily, and I will return recompense on your own head. Because they have taken my silver and gold and have carried into your temples my goodly pleasant things. The children also of Judah and the children of Jerusalem have you sold to the Grecians that you might remove them far from their border. 
Behold, I will raise them out of the place where you have sold them and will return your recompense on your own head. And I will sell your sons and daughters into the hands of the children of Judah, and they shall sell them to the Sabians, to a people far off, for the Lord has spoken it. Now, folks, this last verse that I just read here, the Sabians are the descendants of Sheba, and that's Yemen. Okay, we've talked in the past about how uh, Muhammad actually was a Yemenite from this region. And you're getting brought directly back to them. Well, what other parallels do we have going on during this time in history? All right, we had the Grecian people of Greece were ruling over the Byzantine Empire when history moved along later on. And guess what? We had rumblings between the Byzantine Empire and Jerusalem. There was a slaughter inside of one of the temples in Jerusalem and all kinds of other things that went on here. So you've got direct correlation spinning you back into these circles again, just in that same period of history, at least in that time around the ride. Well, yeah, and it's off the charts that, that an anagram for Judah would be here with the Lamed, and Judah comes right into the text itself. Um, that they, well, their their sons have been sold. So right here, he's telling you that this has something to do with something much more grandiose than you first want to think about. And uh, we also know this ties back into Isaiah chapter 14, uh, particularly verse 29. Do not rejoice, O Felicia, all of you, because the rod that struck you is broken for out of the serpent's root a viper will come out and its fruit will be a flying serpent this is directly right tied in with the diatribe that is mentioned there in verse 4 so you begin to realize that uh, the top part of the stick Judah is it's going to be supernatural. Now, Brian and I have talked about that verse before, about the flying serpents before. And how encoded there is, well, you find one of the handmaids of Pharaoh that refused to kill the children. She's impregnated in that text. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is obviously talking about something... Uh, Supernatural, no doubt about it. You can't read Isaiah chapter 14, verse 29, and not think that this is obviously – well, let me just come out and say it. It's obviously tied in with when one-third of the stars are swept out of heaven by the dragon. There's no doubt about that. And, well, this entire – Thing. I mean, we we didn't read all of Joel chapter 3, but um, he ends with what you really need to see. Um, and, and please take note, I'm, I'm going to read the last three verses here, but please remember that Egypt is the whole planet. And Edom means something too when he mentions Edom. That is the son that was not chose. So you're going to get this prophetically in so many different shadows and silhouettes in these three verses, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, 
But verse 19 of Joel chapter 3, Egypt will become a waste. Well, ladies and gentlemen, just read the book of Revelation. Every single place outside of the place that has been prepared, and wherever that location may be, whether it's terrestrial or extraterrestrial, uh, we don't know where we're going to be taken, where this place is. But it, it certainly is be going to become a waste. And Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah. That should give you a clue. That should be a serious hint. This is only talking about the top half of that stick. This, uh, well, refers to the other portion of the seed of the promise that's going to be numbered, which is numbered in Revelation chapter 14. But let's continue. In whose land they have shed innocent blood, but Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. He literally don't have a problem coming out and telling you, now you know why, that those numbered in Revelation chapter 14, what's their location? They're with the Lamb. Where's his location? Revelation chapter 5 tells you he's in the midst of the living creatures, in the midst of the throne on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the heavenly throne room. So now you're able to understand why this mentions here the innocent blood and how Judah, well, <laughs> uh, Judah's not, well, <laughs> The king is going to exercise all dominion, and somehow it's going to be done uh, because of Joel chapter 3. And that's the exact reason why this stick was incorporated into this text, not only very plainly out in broad daylight, but also using the anagram with what was actually written on the stick, which was with a prefix lamed. So, Brian, did you... Uh, find anagrams with Joseph, and where are those verses at, and how does that tie in? All right, give me one second to get the proper ones up here. Let's see if this takes me to it. Just a moment. Okay, the first one here comes up in Exodus 23, verse 8. And let me uh, change translations here. And you shall not take a bribe for a bribe blinds the blinds the clear sighted and subverts the cause of the just. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. And you shall not take a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the treacherous man. And that's uh, those verses where Ezekiel, or I mean, Exodus 23, verse 8, Deuteronomy 16, verse 19, and Proverbs 22, verse 12. And 22, verse 12 is the one that gets me wondering about the context of the other two verses. Because Depending on your translation, the uh, NASB made it kind of easier to see here, but the words of a treacherous man, it begins to make you wonder about 
the treacherous dealers that are spoken of throughout the Bible, and if this has something to do with it, with bribery. Well, most certainly. I mean, it also um, it bears hint out also in Proverbs 11. Uh, the integrity of the upright will guide them, but the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them, um, literally tying back in with other verses. But you obviously get the hint and the clue that God is not at all pleased um, with these people. And they have taken bribes, uh, just like, well, Balaam, correct? He was paid to uh, curse Israel, no doubt about it. But, ladies and gentlemen, this, this is just screaming Revelation chapter 12 here, how the rest of her children will all of a sudden do exactly what God said they were going to do in the prophecy of the two sticks. I made sure to bring that up, that this had nothing to do with bloodlines, that it had to do with actions. But, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is why they're mentioned as innocent blood in Joel chapter 3. And when you read Revelation chapter 14, you immediately come to uh, the conclusion that uh, once all the data is gathered, there's not going to be any bribing um, this stick that's Joseph and you have to come to grips with this ladies and gentlemen this is really what Revelation states that the group from Revelation chapter 7 that are numbered they don't take the mark of the beast and they're beheaded and they take part in the first resurrection now if you can just imagine the whole earth being laid waste in the tribulation They've gone through it. They've seen it. They've witnessed it. This hell on earth that's going to become due to the rule of the scapegoat. Ladies and gentlemen, you are just told using these anagrams that when they put their foot down, you're going to obey from that point forward throughout the entire 1,000-year reign of Christ. You will follow the letter of the law. And obviously this has everything to uh, tie together with why the beast instills this. You can only barter if you take his mark. So obviously the letter of the law is going to be followed underneath the reign of those of the first resurrection. But now... You understand why this is all tied with taking a bribe, because there's only one way you take a bribe. You're paid for it. But this anagram here with Joseph, with the prefix Lamed, uh, it just screamed it. It screamed it, that there's not going to be any bartering with them. I mean, if you can imagine what they're going to go through. And, and Brian, uh, it amazes me how most people think that this is going to be like a, some horror movie that they've seen before, and it's going to be really bad, but they'll be able to get through it. Ladies and gentlemen, the only reason why they're able to get through it is, is God really does tell you up front that death will flee from you. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you have to come to grips with that, that nobody could survive the tribulation, but they're not allowed to die. 
God commands death to flee from them. So, uh, Brian, don't you think it's pretty amazing that, that, that these verses in taking bribes, every, every single one of them, uh, people have to realize that, well, everyone talks about Holocaust survivors, right? Of which I have known and been able to speak with privately for survivors of the Holocaust. And they're, they're not like me and you, Brian. They don't – well, they're just different. So uh, what's your thoughts on that? That How do you think this group of 144,000 that take part in the first resurrection, what do you think they're going to be like? Well, it's kind of as these verses point out, they're not going to be able to be pushed one way or the other. You can't bribe them. You can't do any of that. And if you read the entirety of these uh, chapters in that context, you begin to get that idea as well. Well, Brian, this isn't the only anagram for Joseph um, with the Lamed. Could you share... Another one with us, please. Yep, we've got one here in Exodus 34, verse 4, and then the next one will be in 1 Kings 5, verse 18. Let's see here. So we cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took the two stone tablets in his hand. And then 1 Kings 5, verse 18, So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the Gebelites cut them and prepared the timbers and the stones to build the house. Brian, what blows me away is it's here, the word for hewn or cut. Let me say that again, ladies and gentlemen. I'll read this out of the KJV. Uh, the word that you hear used for hew and the one that Brian read said cut, it is an anagram of Joseph with the prefix Lamed. And you'll take note. How does this group die? And he hewed two tablets of stone, like unto the first. And Moses rolled up early in the morning and went up unto Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Absolutely off the charts that this is here. It has everything to do, well, <laughs> with why they're not able to be bribed. And this tying in right here is absolutely amazing that uh, these new two tablets that were just like the first we're literally going to go back, and that's why everybody's going to do everything that this group says, because everybody knows what the children of Israel said as they seen and they heard the top of the mountain on fire and saw the presence of the Lord their God. They were absolutely terrified, and they begged, didn't they? No, 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 Moses. We don't want to see the Lord. We don't want to hear him, and we don't want to talk to him. You talk to him for us. Oh, yes, ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly what this is all referencing. You're going to have to deal with Primus Resurrectorate, this 
Sanctus Supplementium <laughs> rather than the Lord your God. And they're not going to tolerate anything. You're going to follow the letter of the law. You're literally going to do whatever they say. And they'll have no games to play with you. So we have one more anagram to share with this particular stick. Brian? Um, I thought I covered all of them for this particular one. You did, but we have another anagram to look at that is in Isaiah 48, Chapter 5. Would you like me to cover that myself? Uh, go ahead here. I've got it up. I just got to pull it up here quick. All right. I shall read it, and then you shall offer your commentary on it. Uh, the KJV, Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 5. I have even from the beginning declared it to thee. Before it come to pass, I showed it thee, lest thou sayest, Mine idol hath done them, and my graven image and my molten image hath commanded them. Brian, your thoughts? Well, it's just one thing that kind of struck me this morning when I was looking at this again is um, it reminds you of the um, the counter to the image of the beast being made. It absolutely does. And it ties in, when you read this in its entire context, um, you get the full meal deal. Uh, it, you know what? Let's let's just go ahead and read this, shall we? Let's just go ahead and read this entire stanza. Uh, Brian, can you read that first stanza from uh, verse one until nine? So do not read nine, but those first eight verses that this anagram is in. And ladies and gentlemen, you're going to see exactly what's coming to pass because, well. The KJV was a little bit rough in its translation, but boy, you get it in this first stanza uh, why this has the Lord so extremely mad. Brian? All right, starting at verse 1. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel, and who came forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted, and they came to pass, because I know they are obstinate. And your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead bronze. Therefore I declared them to you long ago, before they took place, I proclaimed them to you. Lest you should say, my idol has done them, and my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. You have heard, look at all this, and you will not declare it. I proclaim to you the new things from this time, even hidden things which you have not known. They are created now and not long ago, and before today you have not heard them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You have not heard, you have not known, even from long ago your ears have not, has not been opened, because I knew that you would deal very treacherously, and you have been called a rebel from birth. Brian, 
now you really see it, don't you? Verse 4, your neck is of iron, sinew. Ladies and gentlemen, they'll be beheaded. And then it mentions about, well, their forehead being bronze. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let's be honest with each other. Let me just ask Brian. Brian, have you ever heard the Lord our God say that the neck is like iron and the forehead bronze? I mean, why would he say the forehead is like bronze? Why wouldn't he say the whole head? Your thoughts on that? I've not heard that one before. I'm not even sure what to think, to be honest. Well, ladies and gentlemen, let's just go to Revelation chapter 7, shall we? Let's read about this group and why this would be said. Okay? Now, let's start from the top. Let's go before the list is given. And let's see how or why their foreheads are going to be brass. After this, I saw the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Take note, ladies and gentlemen. Let's, let's review this just for a second. I'm sorry for interrupting God's word, but I need to bring this out. For one, this is obviously the center of the earth. This is obviously in reference to the geographical location mentioned in the two chapters that contain the Gog and Magog War. No doubt about it. That's, that's why the Four Corners is mentioned here. Number two, you will take note that where does the wind not blow? Where does the beast come out of? He comes out of the sea. Number three, we're right back to the prophecy of two sticks being forged into a rod of iron. Verse 2, and I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Now, why does it say that? Of course, one beast out of the sea, one out of the earth. Verse 3, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And you'll take note. Ladies and gentlemen, why is there no reference here? Why is there no reference here to the one verse that would give you explanation of this? Don't you find that kind of strange that we have, well, uh, you have Revelation 9, verse 4, um, it says, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. All right, right there's, right there's foreheads. Okay. Uh, here in Revelation chapter 7, of course. And, well, uh, Revelation chapter 13 infers to it. Uh, and he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except one who has the mark and the name of the beast or the number of his name. It doesn't say forehead, but you know that's where it's at, because he already told you that's where it's at. So, ladies and gentlemen, you need to come to grips with this. Why isn't, why would you exclude Isaiah chapter 48, verse 4, from those cross-references? It's clearly what he's talking about. And 
now you understand verse 5, I pro- proclaimed it to you long ago, yada, yada, yada. Ladies and gentlemen, this is absolutely using isochronal eschatology. It's absolutely talking about the image of the beast and those that will say, no, we're not going to take your mark. And the only way to kill them, because death has fleed from them, the only way to stop them is to behead them. I didn't say that was going to kill them. But they have to be beheaded. And they can't take that mark because now you know why they can't take that mark. The angel was commanded to seal the 144,000, which we call Primus Resurrectorate. They rule and reign with Christ in an action that replaces the kings mentioned in, well, Isaiah chapter 24. So this rod of iron is extremely significant now. You have the top half that replaces the, well, princes of this earth and how they presently operate. And the other, the bottom half of the stick is going to replace the kings of the earth. That's how it's going to be. So these anagrams taking us to these particular places with the usage of, well, Judah with the prefix Lamed and Joseph with the prefix Lamed is absolutely off the charts. Now, you will (laughs) – ladies and gentlemen, it's so prophetic how everything here is set up in this stanza. And you'll take note that that the last verse that Brian read, you get a hint and a clue as to the top half of the stick by way of, well, I knew that you would deal very treacherously, and you have been a rebel from birth. This has got something to do with the birthing cycle, no doubt about it. And concerning the birthing cycle… I've been speaking at length, and Brian has really had very little to commentate, so I'm going to pass this off to him for just a second. But let us consider, ladies and gentlemen, there is something here incorporated into the text that, well, you can't see there in Ezekiel chapter 37. You can't see it. You have to implement biblical mechanics to see it. But take note, verse 24 incorporates the alphanumerical equation 1010. I'm not going to explain it. I'll let Brian explain it, but I'm going to read it. And we shall see what we can see and why God would incorporate this integer into verse 24 of Ezekiel 37. My servant, King David, will be over them. And they will all have one shepherd, and they will all walk in my ordinance and keep my statutes and observe them. We're back to this verse again, aren't we? Brian, why do you think that this would be incorporated, this integer, for 1,010 days? Your thoughts? Well, I had found it interesting you brought up birth cycles, and I was just going to try to see if I could find a... Yeah, I mean, I've got some of this stuff done up right now um, just by breaking down the 70 weeks into a simplicity of the uh, birth cycle itself with um, 
280 days, but breaking it down to 28. And you can pretty much put this into about any set of the end time factors that are going to come up. But yeah, and to bring up the obvious there, 1010 is obviously two years and under within the womb, uh, 730, 730, and then uh, 280 which is going to bring you to that specific number. And this even brings it around to the stick with Joseph with woe be unto Rachel's children. That's right. And which goes straight straight to the one nobody talks about in Matthew 24, verse 19. Uh, You're told out in the open uh, why this is. I mean, you know, just to reiterate, what is 1010? Well, ladies and gentlemen, two years, how many days is that? That's 730. Well, how many days plus is required to get to that 10-10? Well, exactly one birthing cycle. And, of course, Isaiah chapter 26 gives it to you both barrels that, uh, well, the redemption referred to here in all these chapters we've talked about, um, well, they're taken from the womb. And you realize that two years and under, these the top half of the stick that's taken to Mount Zion. They're either taken from the womb or they're taken from the breast. Historically, that's what that's always meant. That doesn't matter where you go on the planet. All nursing mothers throughout all of time knows exactly what you're talking about when you talk about uh, two years and under. Uh, They know exactly what you're referring to. And This plays a major role with all of the integers provided to us in the book of Daniel. Because, ladies and gentlemen, you have to to realize what it is God's doing. The first number that he gives you, of course, is 2,300, that this entire thing is going to run the course in that amount of time. Then he mentions to you 1290. Well, ladies and gentlemen, what is 2,300 minus 1290? That's 1010. He's literally trying to grab you. That's why he doesn't mention it. Now, that's also, this obviously has everything tied into, well, then why does he say that we have to wait? Why does he use that word to wait till the end of the 1,335 days? What is that? And why doesn't he come out and say that? He never comes out and says 1010. He never comes out and says 45, when that's obviously what he means. That's what he's obviously talking about. So, Brian and I have talked about this many times, but uh, Brian, your your current thoughts on those integers in Daniel, and well, we've already talked about how Bernice tied into all this, and well, now everybody probably realizes why she had to be in the equation. Brian? Well, those integers, and I'm, I'm looking over this right now, and I mean... I did some work with uh, Daniel 11 and even um, Daniel 9, obviously, taking, uh, looking at the birth cycles and comparing that with time, uh, times and a half a time, and I broke it down between 28 and then obviously 28 and 2856, and then a half a time being 14, I'll bring you to 98. And when you start working around with this, uh, these different integers, you end up finding all kinds of real, just unbelievable time patterns here. 
That's all I can kind of remember at the moment here. Yes, the integers are they they create patterns in time. They most certainly do. They create patterns in time. But God doesn't stop there. Um, fortunately, now most people would say unfortunately, but no, um, I say fortunately uh, because we have other things to talk about. Like the word, well, used in Daniel chapter 12, verse 12. I just mentioned it. Let me read it. How blessed is he who keeps fighting and attains to the 1,335 days. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that alphanumerical calculation is in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 16, letting you know exactly when these things are going to be done. Letting you know exactly when that angel is going to seal the 144,000. So, let's take a look at that word, therefore, to wait. It is H5060. Now, this is pretty off the charts. So, I'm going to read this out of Michelson Strong's. It is the word nega. It means to touch, to lay the hand upon, to lie with a woman, to reach, to arrive, to acquire. It also means to strike a blow. Now, you have to realize that there are jots and tittles, and the strong separates the single word. So, you have to also look at 5061, because that's also nega. They just use different cantillation marks so that it's pronounced differently. So that when, uh, well, the Orthodox read this, they can differentiate the two. This means, of course, uh, once again, it's a blow, an infliction, a spot, a sore, a leprous person or dress. It's a mark. You'll take note that Ben and I just mentioned this on Adventures in Isochronology. And everybody probably realizes why I kept that in my back pocket. But, ladies and gentlemen, when we go to Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse 16 and take a look at it, it states, once again I shall use the web version, and take note, I am not going to try to pronounce, I'm not going to address my father proper. I'm not going to do that. But I will read the verse in front of it so you have the full understanding. Verse 15. The word of the Lord came again to me saying, verse 16, You, son of man, take one stick and write on it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take the other sticks and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions, you were just told, using alphanumerics inside this verse, this is going to happen during those 45 days when you wait. Now, Brian and I have attached an epitaph to this time as well. We call it time topsy-turvy. This is another reason why one of the phrases used in that saying, times time and a half time, another place 
in the Bible, it states, well, time and the dividing. So you have time in that verse and dividing. That's what this is talking about when God divides time. So it's off the charts that, well, ladies and gentlemen, this is one of the major reasons why God took their vows. So he can do this using alphanumerics. So you have to come to grips that there was never Arabic numerals in God's word. Not ever. It was never in the Hebrew language. They don't have Arabic numerals. They don't have one, twos, and threes. They never did. Greek, as used in the Septuagint and the Adidorigia, never had Arabic numerals. They weren't invented yet. They were not invented until the same time frame that the unclean seized the Temple Mount. Now, when I say unclean, I mean everybody. I don't want to pick on any particular uh, genetic race. There's no reason to do that. The unclean seas, the Temple Mount, and of course the 700s. This is the same exact time that Fibonacci invented and started using and promoting Arabic numerals. So ladies and gentlemen, when you look at the original languages which God wrote the Bible in, this is what you see. You see A1s, B2s, and C3s. Did you catch it? You don't see A, Bs, and Cs, and 1, 2s, and 3s. Not in either language. Let me say that again. You see A1s, B2s, and C3s. And he just come right out and told you. He had no problem sharing that information with you. That's why you're going to have to wait. That's why he gave the – that this whole thing starts out in its entire duration until the great day of he who set up the, upon the throne is 2,300 days. He didn't have any problem telling you that. He had no problem in telling you that things are going to start going haywire Make no mistakes about it. You're going to have to, well, endure for 1,290 days because he is limiting, he is restricting what evil intends to do until his day. Because they're not allowed to inherit the earth, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, this is the whole purpose for the great day of he who sitteth upon the throne. There's no such thing as a new world order. It never was ordained because, well, that's why all the events prior to the sixth seal event, which is the great day of Hugh set up upon the throne, that's why they're being restricted because they're not allowed to inherit the earth in its beauty. So God gets up off his throne. He sets on the heavens for a time, and then he impacts Mount Paran, and he kicks. This planet off its axis levels every mountain and fills in every valley. And there you can have that. This this facilitates the whole thing. I mean, he had no problem utilizing alphanumerics to show you everything, how everything's going to happen, why it's going to happen, why it needs to happen this way. Ladies and gentlemen, you actually think that God would let the beast 
be unleashed from the abyss and inherit the, well, planet you now see. Now, I know these God-haters, those who hate God, um, you call them tree-huggers. They worship the earth, and they uh, do acts of terrorism, which <laughs> you'd have to live in the Bakken to know all about them. The ones who bust the pipelines, the one who puts things on the railroad track so that the trains uh, tip over so there'll be oil fields. Those people, the ones that are so psychotic, um, they actually think that charity is taking cat and dog food to animal shelters. Those people that hate, they actually hate humanity. Do you actually think those people would be allowed to inherit um, the massive beauty displayed on this planet? I mean, regardless of what they say, ladies and gentlemen, have you ever been to Waikiki Beach? I have not. However, from the witnesses that I've interviewed that's been there and the pictorial representations, it is, by every stretch of imagination, a paradise. And I could just keep going and going and going. Oh, no. Oh, no. The beast and his false prophet will never touch that. Oh, no. No, they're not allowed to get their hands on that, so God takes care of it. So this facilitates the whole process. Brian, your comments. Well, it's important to point out the fact that, yeah, everything is encoded within the alphanumerics, and a lot of folks believe that we're not supposed to touch that, that that's, uh, I can't remember what they call it, numerology or something or else along those lines, but they don't seem to recognize the fact that the Arab numerals didn't come around until late 600 into early 700. So it's kind of uh, important that people know that and realize there's a lot more encoded information in there uh, than at first glance. So, Well, it's it, this is tied in with a simple fact, Brian, that – they did something before they did this, because historically speaking, uh, you're not correct. They're not correct. This garbage was never spread until after the 70s when the God-haters, uh, they would masquerade as Christians and they would go get uh, theological degrees, even though everybody knows it. And, and I've actually had first-hand action with this, have no problem talking about it, uh, busting preachers. That were atheists, and going into their house and taking people with me that was on the church council, and I said, look, act like a Christian, watch the bookshelves, see what movies and DVDs they got, keep your eyes open. We'll walk in there, and they were atheists, and then when they were confronted, they tell you, well, heck no, I'm not a Christian. I'm, I'm an atheist. This is my career. So, no, what you're saying, that people call numerous no, 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 Christians did not used to say that. And you don't want to say that in a place like, oh, I don't know, the Eastern Orthodox Church. You're you're going to be dealt a serious blow. But uh, this is just amazing uh, that people don't realize that God doesn't have a problem with giving you the information. But ladies and gentlemen, what on earth do you think God is doing there in Daniel chapter 12? I mean, you all very rarely – do you hear ministries speak about uh, God's numbers? Uh, he obviously states, well, the entire book of Revelation is set off of numbers, sevens most particularly, 144,000 being the other one. Uh, but I guess the, that's numerology. I guess the mark of the beast 
and he don't have a problem coming out and telling you. By the way, that is what you've labeled as a bad term. Now, it's alphanumerics. It comes right out and tells you that. God literally tells you that's what it is, but uh, he also does this with the marking of the 144,000. He doesn't use your Arabic 144,000. No, it's not what he it's not what he uses. But so you have to come to grips with. So you're saying that Daniel was a numerologist because he used well 2,300, 1,290, and 1,335. So historically, that's absolutely incorrect. Nobody would say that except well, I mentioned them before. Those who hate God, and more importantly, they hate the judgment. That's what they really hate. Is the simple fact that they can't do what they want to do. God is going to judgment. Uh, they are going to to well receive what they've earned, and uh, that's really really what's happened. And all this has taken place since the since the seventies, Brian. So uh, people just need to come to grips with the simple fact that I mean we really. Did share quite a lot tonight, Brian. I mean, we've actually provided an explanation as to why those integers are even given. And, well, who it is on Mount Zion. Why they're numbered and why they're given the same exact number that those uh, do in Revelation chapter 7. I mean, that's all probably new information to them. And uh, it does rattle your cage at first. It really does. But... uh this prophecy of the two sticks, just using the anagrams and the alphanumerics, we have shared a whopping bit of information. Do you agree, Brian? Oh, yeah. So, Brian, now these things have been brought into light and how important this is. What's your, what's your thoughts on all of this and what you see in the social networking site, you know, post from, well, from Christians, those that you observe, are they talking about these things? Are they talking about the end times or having to, well, brace yourself, especially for these 45 days? I mean, don't you think that the church should be exclusively talking about these 45 days and how to get through them, I would think, but – what are your observations that that self-proclaiming Christians are talking about? What's what's your thoughts on that? Well, the main big thing I keep seeing is the fixation on a rapture or pre-tribulation rapture, and that's to the extent about all anybody talks about. And of course, they've got their you know their infamous set of events that they think has to happen before this comes about, so they keep hinging on. Well, they state this is going to happen, and then it doesn't happen, and then they put a new day. It doesn't happen. I mean, I've watched one guy now make five predicaments in these last five months alone, and it's just, wow. And they have no idea whatsoever about the 45-day time period at all. Nobody's talking about that. Brian, why don't you give your personal thoughts on it? I mean, everything that you know about this this 45 days what's your intentions and and we need the truth um because i know what 
the popular ones say. They say beans, bullets, and bullion. And let me translate that. You get your guns and your ammo, and then you get your beans, your your canned beans or just dried beans, and you get your gold. Uh, how and then, now look, this is across the board. Uh, it's across the board. That's that's what they say that the people f- that uh, say that they have to wait for any length of time. I.e., they say that there's not a pre-tribulational rapture. Uh, how does your view different? from that, how would you expect to be able to get through this this 45 days? Oh, yeah. Well, I saw the seen the good old scams trying to get people to put all their money into their survival food and get their survival money and their bullets like you brought up. And they seem to not pay attention to the fact that Isaiah 24 points out that none of that money is going to be worth anything on that day. Um, you can forget about your bullets, all those beans you stocked up. Most likely, they're probably going to be buried in the ground somewhere where you can't get at them. And, you know, let's just add in on top of it, too. If you are going to live by that sword, well, guess what? You're going to die by that sword as well. So, once again, that whole reality here, it's a fiction. You're not going to be able to fight back against the things coming upon the earth in that time. As well, so uh, well, what is uh, bullets gonna do? Well, l- let's bring that up. We've never talked about that before, you and I. Uh, so you're saying that there's obviously no defense against what is coming upon the earth, and why don't you describe what that is? And do these people come up with inventive ways as to how? Uh, perhaps they can get special bullets that'll work or whatever. We've never talked about that, and I think it's about time that we did. So can you explain what's actually going to come on the earth uh, and why there's no defense against it and and list some of the things you've heard about how they could possibly make their guns work against what is coming? Well, we have the varied... Things that are going to be released upon the earth, obviously, you know, the description of certain um, chimera that are along the lines of uh, locusts. You've got mixes with horses, lions, all kinds of different things going on. And I don't know. I haven't seen too much what these people are trying to say, what kind of bullet they can use. But I know that there's been some kind of scam jobs going on out there where they're telling people you can kill them with a certain type of bullet. So... Which is extremely disturbing, and the most important entities to talk about is, well, the one-third of the host of heaven that's going to be forced off their stars by the dragon. Uh, No doubt about it. Uh, And it blows me away, but the one thing that I've heard... um, in relationship to this, and it's absolutely off the charts. You can even buy solid copper bullets. And, <laughs> of course, some of them say that silver also works. And, Brian, what effect do you think a projectile-style weapon will have against an angel? What's what's your thoughts on that? 
I would say no effect whatsoever. Well, I would say that they are actually capable of even um, stopping the bullet midair, wouldn't you say? Um, we have a grandiose list of what they're actually capable of. and Well, let's go to when uh, the disciples of the Lord our God was freed from prison. They could probably actually, at a distance, just disassemble your weapon in your hand, I would think. And then the next thing they're going to do is be really mad because they know they've only got 1,260 days to play in this, well, wasteland as we read in the prophecies today that this planet's going to become. So they're not going to be altogether very happy. What do you think is going to be their frame of mind once this happens, Brian, do you think they're going to be very pleasant or they're going to be able to be bartered with? Uh, what's your thoughts? I'd say you're in trouble if you're the one that pulled that trigger. I don't know what else to say. Well, it's 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 just crazy. They'll just come up with anything to be able to sell you. Um, and it's sad. But, ladies and gentlemen... I'm going to call for closing comments. My closing comments, my closing thoughts are this. There's a whole lot more in the Bible than you thought because God is no respecter of persons. What does that mean? It's repeatedly stated in the scripture. God doesn't have a problem with telling you that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, understanding. He repeats that multiple times. Because he is no respecter of persons, he's not afraid of anything, so he don't has a he don't have a problem uh, telling you all the details that we've shared with you here tonight. Now, if you would like to see where these things are at, you can join our Facebook group. According to the scripture, uh, that can be done. I'm going to post what I shared tonight. I'll make sure that Brian posts those anagrams, the links to them. You can take a look at it for yourself because God is no respecter of persons. He's not afraid to give you the details. It's just that you don't know how to see them. You can't see them in English. You can't see them in Russian. You can't see them in Italian. You can't see them in German. You can only see them in the languages God used to write his word. Brian, your closing comments, please. Well, that's just it. There's a whole lot to see here beyond what you're going to get out of the initial English. And you're always going to learn a lot more by using the original words in the original languages. And even these anagrams have a whole lot more that they will point out. So um, you can find these uh, anagrams. I'll post them to the Bands of Time at on Twitter. Dot com, and that's where you can locate those. With that said, thanks for joining us. God bless.